0: chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Mark chapter 4, I'm going to pray, and then we are going to begin. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for this group. I thank You for an opportunity to open Your Word. Um. To hear from you, I pray tonight, especially for tonight god that that you that you would give us ears to hear and that we would um, submit to you and that we would seek truth from you um, so that we could know you so that we could um, come to to fall in love with you, I believe is what happens, and that ultimately God we can bring you glory by living the way You've called us to live and, and representing You um, to, to others and revealing You to others as we stay in relationship with You. And, and so, God, I, I pray that we would just surrender control tonight, that whatever it is that has consumed our thoughts and whatever it is that, has, um, that is racing through our minds, God, that we would turn that over to You, trusting that You are in control, uh, trusting that it will be there when we leave here, uh, but God, for this for this next hour or so, God, that you would give us the grace to be able to disconnect from those things in order to connect with you. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Like I said, we are in Mark chapter 4. If you are new or maybe uh, you've been once or twice, but to remind you, we're, we're, we're going through the book of Mark this year. It's going to take us all year, both semesters, because we're going through it slowly. Um, Whenever you study the Bible it's important this is something we've talked about from the beginning but it's important to to try and understand the author's intended meaning so we, we want to we want to know it's best to understand the author's intended meaning by, by getting to know and figuring out the context of, of what's going on so we need to know before we know, know what Mark is saying um, in this gospel we need to understand a little bit of context to to what's going on and typically what we talk about that is there's a historical context, and there's a literary context. There's um, verses before and after the, the verses that we're going to study tonight that really do play a part in what we're talking about. Um, but I want, to, I want to I want to talk from a 30,000 foot view context, and, and that's using these four words: creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Um, God created, and, and He created everything, and He created it all, the, the, the land, the sky, the water, the fish, the, the birds, the animals, the trees, everything, He created it for His glory, and it was to display and to, to magnify Him, and then the pinnacle of creation, God says He creates us, male and female, He created us in His image, to bear His image, and He said it was very good, and we were to, our job was to, as we stayed in relationship with Him, was to rule and to reign and to subdue the earth for His glory, for His purposes. And, and we did that for two chapters. Um, we got all the way through the end of Genesis chapter 2. And then the beginning of Gen- Genesis chapter 3 is the fall. And so Adam and Eve chose to ignore God's commands, and to take control of their own life and take matters in their own hands and say, "I'm going to do what I want to do," and and so they chose to um, ignore God's commands and eat of this fruit for um, for their own purposes. And in despite God's relationship with them, despite all these things, they chose to do this and sin fractured. Um, human connection to God for the rest of eternity. And so from Genesis chapter 3, um, right, right around verse 7, you see God pursuing His people. You see God walking in the cool of the day. You see um, God pursuing after them. And that's actually the story of the rest of the Bible. Is that as, as men and women seek to take control of their own life in their own hands, um, following in the footsteps of Adam and Eve, um, they, they want control. We want control. And so you've seen throughout all of the Bible, as God pursues, as God establishes covenants and relationships, as God um, um, rescues, you see over and over and over the people, God's people, us, um, rejecting His help and choosing it to do our own way because we want to be in control. And then, all of this heads towards Jesus coming, and Him being uh, this King that was coming to rescue us from this this um, controlling nature, this this desire to take matters into our own hands. And so He's He's come to not just to uh, not just to be an example for us, but to literally pay the penalty that we deserve, to die in our place for our sins and and he proved that he paid that penalty by rising from the dead by by conquering death and so in that in that event he 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 um he defeated the two things that's, that that really stand between us and eternity with God which is sin and death and and Jesus conquers that and and by faith in him we actually get to be made in, into a new image not in not 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 in the footsteps of our Father and mother, Adam and Eve, but in, in a, in a new as a new image in the image of Christ. The Bible says, "If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone; the new has come." And so, we get to surrender our control issues to God. We get to surrender our um, usurping ways as we usurp God's authority and try to take it in for our own glory. And, and so this this is this is what. Jesus came to do, to bring God glory as he changes our image, changes our inside from the inside out, so that we forever live by his strength and power, give glory to him, um, surrender control to him, and and do it all for his purposes and his glory, and, and for our enjoyment of him as well, for our joy. And so I think that's an important context to understand where we're going and what, what's about to happen here in, in Mark chapter 4 as we try to figure out why Jesus teaches in parables, why He teaches in this way that seems so difficult and seems um, sometimes like it's, uh, like He's making it harder than it needs to be. And so that will be co- important context for us to understand. Um, so as we start into Mark chapter 4, there's, there's a word that appears right at the beginning that you need to understand. In fact, it really does add some historical context to what's going on in Jesus' day. And it's this word, hear. Okay? Hear. Um, in In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, is this famous, famous line. Hear, O Israel... The Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. And in Jewish people during Jesus' day, that was a prayer called the what? Anybody know? The Shema. The, word, the Hebrew word for here is the word Shema. And this was a prayer that every Jew, Jewish boy and girl would pray um, daily as a as a confession of faith. And so this is a this is a big word because the it was this like, this, this call to, um, to listen carefully because something about to be said that is important and you don't want to miss it. And that word, this word here is mentioned 13 times in, in the verses we're going to read tonight. And in fact, it bookends the parable that we're about to study um, right here in, in, in chapter 4. So, so the question we should be asking is, what is it that Jesus wants us to hear? And, and what is it? What, what opportunity is he giving us to take? So let's, let's read. Rachel, if you could read Mark 4, 1 through 9, please.
1: Again he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear.
0: Okay. So, uh, another word that, that comes up a couple times that I think is important for you to, to understand is the word soil. Um, Jesus, in fact, it, it appears three times. It's in verse 1. It, it, in In the ESV, it's the word land. But it's also the same word used in verse 5 and verse 8. So, G- Jesus is in a boat okay, because its crowds are too many so he gets in this boat he stands he's teaching from this boat and they're on the land they're, they're on the earth they're on soil and he begins to teach about four types of soil In fact, so this, this parable becomes you, maybe, maybe many of you have heard it this parable is about this, this sower who sows his seed on four different types of soil so we have the path in which the birds eat it and it, there's no chance for growth. You, we have the rocky ground in which the rocks are too close to the surface and so there's not enough depth of soil. It's shallow soil. And so there's, the, the roots don't, aren't able to dig deep. And the, when the sun comes out, it scorches it and it dies. And then it's sowed among thorns. And now the, the soil is deep, but, but the, the thorns are too thick. And so when the plant grows... The thorns choke it out and it dies. And then the last soil is the good soil. And there's plenty of dirt, there's there's plenty of room, and the seed is able to die and break forth and bear fruit and grow and produce um, plenty of plenty of crop. So a couple couple observations. Uh, About this, that I think are interesting. One, the focus seems to be on the soil and its ability to produce long-term fruit. Notice the there's a couple of them have uh, have uh, immediate results, but the immediate results don't seem to be as important as the long-term long-term fruit. And so, the focus seems to be on the soil, not on the harvest, or or. How can how, how, how can we grow the most grain um, by by sowing seed that doesn't seem to be the focus the focus doesn't seem to be on the harvest it seems to be focused on the soil one the, the next observation the sowing of the seed, the sowing of the seed actually re- reveals whether or not the soil is harvesting soil or not so as the sower sows where it lands it reveals it um, where it lands actually reveals what 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 kind of soil that is? And then the, the next observation: the sower appears to be sowing seed with generous abandon, not not being frugal and meticulous and picky, but but generous. And and uh, and, uh, and abandonment just seems to be throwing it anywhere, hoping it sticks anywhere. So obviously, this parable is is, is there's something here. In a, in a moment, Jesus is going to explain exactly what he means by this, but it helps us unlock the meaning of Jesus' teachings here. So let's continue on in the next two, uh, three verses, next three. 10 through 12.
1: And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive. And may indeed
0: hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven okay now, right off the bat, Jesus gives us an an idea, so he so the disciples come to him they 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 've heard this, and they don't know what it means, but they they trust Jesus enough to say, okay um you're going to have to help us with that one i What do you mean by that um, and so jesus says he 's talking about the kingdom hes he 's referring to The kingdom. So he he lets us in on on why these parables are taught and that they have the kingdom in mind. They're 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 to teach about the kingdom of God, which is wherever God rules and reigns, the kingdom exists. And so he's he's explaining what happens when when he preaches and the kingdom happens. The kingdom goes forth. Um, uh, so these parables have something to do with the kingdom. Then then he uses this word secret. Why would he use the word secret? Why would Jesus want to keep anything secret the The Greek word is mysterion from which we get what word Mysterious. mystery and anytime in the, in the New Testament um, uses this word several times, anytime the New Testament uses the word mystery, it's not referring to um, it's not referring to a mystery or a secret in that in the sense that it's incomprehensible like you'll never understand it's, that's not. That's not the way it's used. It's actually used to describe more of a secret being that, that is being revealed, but not everybody knows. A secret that is being revealed, but, but not everybody knows. And then, he, then he says the word outside. And so Jesus isn't afraid to use insider and outsider language. We don't like that. We want everybody to be inside. Everybody's in. But Jesus doesn't seem to be afraid to use that language because it's actually reality. When he, when he refers to insiders or outsiders, he's, he's actually referring to believers and unbelievers. Those that believe and the disciples and those with them show that they believe by coming to him seeking to know, seeking truth, seeking answers. Um, they, uh, they, they, they display, it, it reveals a heart that is willing to seek truth and exposes that they, they actually believe in Jesus. And so they are, what he would describe as, on the inside. And then those on the outside, they, they don't seek to know. It's the rest of the crowd that doesn't seek to know what Jesus meant, doesn't seem to care to know, to know more, and therefore doesn't have a heart to know truth, and, is, and their unbelief is exposed by this parable. And then he, and then he seems to quote something here, That even makes it more confusing. It's almost like Jesus is saying, yeah, I do that so that those that can't see won't see and those that can't hear won't hear so that they won't understand, they won't perceive what's going on. Okay, what? (laughs) I thought, okay, Jesus, I thought your job was to make this easy. I thought the reason you came was so people would be like, oh, God's here, sweet, now I believe. He just performed a miracle. Yes, I believe now. But if you read the Gospels, that's not really what happens. Like Jesus performs miracles, He speaks, and some believe, and some walk away. So, He's quoting Isaiah 6. Okay? Isaiah 6 is, is important to understand. It's, it's Isaiah 6, verse 9, actually. And Isaiah was writing during a time when Israel was rebelling against God. And, and so, Isaiah, God's messenger, wrote, wrote during, right before God delivered His people into the hand of the Assyrians and into the hand of the Babylonians um, because they consistently for hundreds of years rejected um, God's commands. They rebelled against Him. They chose to ignore Him. They worshipped other gods. They treated each other and others with injustice. And so God said, Enough. I'm going to discipline you. Um, I, I have experienced this, not only as a son... But also as a dad, like what discipline does um, to the heart of a child who seems to be harder, that gets harder and harder and harder until finally it's like, okay, it's time. And I don't know what you guys believe about spanking. I don't know if I care. But, uh, you know, there is a point, not with all my kids because I've had to discipline them differently, but there is a point where it's amazing the hardness of heart in my We'll we'll say my son because some of you know him, um, and 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 when that kind of discipline takes place, all of a sudden there's this like softness. He recognizes, yeah, I need correction. I need discipline. I will continue to go my own rebellious way unless you guys care enough to pull me back. And that is essentially what God does. He he says, okay, for hundreds of years you've rejected me, so I'm going to hand you over to your enemies, and they're going to enslave you, and then you're going to realize what you've done, and then you're going to call on me, and I'm going to rescue you. And this is the context in which Isaiah is preaching. He says, God says to Isaiah, listen Isaiah, you're going to preach to the people, but their heart is so hard, they're going to hear, but they're not going to understand. They're going to see, but they're not going to perceive. They're not going to believe me. But that's what you get to do you get to preach to an audience that's not that's going to reject you and Jesus uses this as a context for teaching um, parables so con- contrast to our American way of doing everything Jesus doesn't desire to make truth easy and on the bottom shelf for you to just grab whenever you want he's, he's saying that truth will reveal um, if if you want to believe and trust me or not, he says. So, um, one scholar said it this way. He said, Jesus chose to teach par- teach in parables not as a mode of instruction, not as a clever way to teach truth, but rather as a form of offense. He says, parables are full of elements that are odd, fantastic, extravagant, and offensive in order to shatter the world where everything is in its place. In other words, um, parables weren't given to teach points but to stir hearts, um, forcing the hearer or the reader uh, to a crisis or a collision that requires movement. So Jesus teaches a parable and and essentially when when truth enters into the situation um, it polarizes It separates those that believe with those that don't believe. And so those that believe will gather, will get the truth, will gather the truth, and actually they will believe even more. And those that choose not to believe, it will be even more confusing to them. And so, um, something that we have to come to grips with is that God's truth, if God's truth isn't ever offensive to you, you're probably not hearing it right. So it goes against our natural way of thinking cuz cuz it's it's God saying, "No, no, no, we're going to do it my way." Remember? From the beginning, we've wanted to do it our way, and God says, no, "No, my way's best." And so if we yearn for God, then then we can make then we can work through the offense and trust him for the meaning. So it's no wonder that Jesus, okay? It's no wonder that Jesus would ask us to follow Him. We must deny ourselves, pick up our cross daily, and die die to ourselves in order to follow Him. And so it doesn't get more offensive than that. It doesn't get more offensive than than Jesus saying, you need to die. You need to die to yourself to follow me. So this is the Jesus that we serve. This is the Jesus. Uh, And and, and so it, it, it helps us understand, this is why He taught... The way he taught. So let's keep going. Now, we're gonna we're gonna finish through. We're gonna spend less time, but but verses ten through twelve really do help un, help us understand and explain um, what's going on in these parables. So read verses thirteen through twenty.
1: And he said to them, "Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown." when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold.
0: Okay. So Jesus gets to explain exactly what he means by this parable. And so these these soils represent people and and Essentially, the reception of the gospel truth or the kingdom truth is directly related to the pre existing spiritual state of the hearers' hearts. So each one represents a different type, right? So in this crowd, there are people that like the path, uh, most likely the Pharisees and the scribes. They have no desire, they have no soil in which to receive this kingdom truth. In fact, they're trying to. Catch him in something. They're trying to, as we've already seen, they're trying to figure out a way to remove him from the scene. So they have no, they, there's there's no no tr- chance of growth in their unbelief. The second group you see um, is this shallow faith that says, "Yeah, I believe it," but then when trials and persecution and troubles come, they're quick to go, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! I didn't sign up for this. If I, if 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 life with Jesus." doesn't get me a better life, then I don't want it. The next group, I think a lot of us relate to, we want to believe the truth, but our life is so busy, and our, and our schedules are so packed, and our desires are so full of worldly things that, that all those things just kind of choke the life out of this faith that God has called us to, this, this life of denying ourselves and giving control to Him, and so um, it's, it's choked out, and then of course the last group is those that make room that, that, that are willing to submit to and surrender to and clear the way for God's truth to grow in them. So, let's continue on. Verses uh, 21 through 40, uh, 25. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket
1: or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, "Pay attention to what you hear with the measure you use it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you for to the one who has more will be given, and from the one who has not even what he has will be taken away
0: okay so Jesus is redefining what it means what what is hidden in this, and he 's saying that that uh, that faith is not to remain hidden but it'll come to light it'll be revealed for what it is and he 's giving further explanation to why he teaches in parables. And then in verses twenty four through twenty five he says that the more you exercise this word, the more you live out this faith, the more you trust and believe, um, that the more it will be added to you. And the and the one who does not believe, the one who does not exercise his faith, the one who does not push through the the um, the difficulty to to seek truth, is so that they will be even more. They will have less. And so Jesus gives both a warning and a promise that, that he's saying, If you have access to truth, be careful that you don't turn a deaf ear to it. And that those who risk those who are willing to risk something for this faith have everything to gain. Read twenty six through
1: twenty nine. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows he knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come.
0: Okay. The kingdom of God, he goes on, he uses this, continues with this farmer language, like a farmer faithfully sowing and trusting God to produce growth. He, It says, he knows not how. That's key. In fact, you can underline that. He knows not how. That seems to be the point that that uh, it's, it's like a farmer who sows and trusts it all to God he has, he has no control over what happens in fact, pious Jews um, would believe, believe that plant and crops that when they grow it was just a wonderful work of God because you know they lived in times where there was famine and then there was abundance and and sometimes they couldn't predict how or what or when and, and so they just had to trust they had to trust God to provide for them. And so they didn't know um, what, what went on underneath the earth. They, they just trusted God with it, and so that seems to be the point. It's something that God was in control of. Now read 30 through
1: 34. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything.
0: Okay. So Jesus uses this mustard seed. I don't know if you've ever seen a mustard seed. Um, It is a tiny little thing. Ten of them can fit on the point of your finger. Um, and so he's not saying it is a mustard seed. He's saying he's comparing it to what happens to a mustard seed. It goes from this small, seemingly insignificant little seed, the smallest of of, of, of seeds, to one of the largest um, garden plants that grows. And 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 so he's he's saying that this this seemingly insignificant ha, has this powerful transformation that takes place, and uh, and then ends up. Providing for shade for the environment around. Um, he's highlighting this hidden power, powerful ability to grow and transform in order to make an impact. So, so Jesus is teaching in, in these in these parables, and I want to I want to highlight um, again. If if you're still not sure why Jesus would would teach in this kind of mysterious way, teach in this way that seems to be make it difficult and not just simple. Um, remember um, that Jesus is claiming to be king. And the, and, the, and the way Jesus actually becomes king is by dying in order to conquer. And so He He's this is this is the this is the way of Jesus. It's it's upside down. It's backwards. And and so faith in him is going to require something more than just logically figuring out Jesus. It's going to require um, surrender of control and discernment and and trusting and believing. And we need God's help to do this. We can't, you can't come to Jesus. You can't believe His words on your own. You need His strength and His power and His help. So, we're going to take a break for a couple minutes, a few minutes, and then Drew will get back up and... Continue on. Alright,
2: moving into sec, uh, this second section where we're going to kind of explore a wider theme here. Here's, here's what I want to do. We just got, to, we just got to, to look at some of the more famous, specifically that parable of the sower is one of the, the more famous, one of the most kind of quintessential parables of Jesus, and, and we got to see really kind of a nice sample of what his parables are like. Um, a nice sample in that these are specifically geared towards explaining what the kingdom is like, and a lot of parables, you could, you could maybe argue that all of them are bent towards explaining some aspect of the kingdom, but these are about explaining kind of the direction it's going and the way it moves and grows. And, and then you also see in here a, um, the majority of the, the parables that he tells in Mark 4 are agricultural in nature, yeah. and and so that's a. Yeah, I got some amens from the uh, the ag econ <laughs> majors there. So, um, so here's the question though. Here's the question I want to ask you, and that is, and uh, yeah, that is, why is it that Jesus primarily uses? Because if you go and you study, it's not just here. Pretty much throughout the Gospels, the primary. Um, imagery that he uses, the, the one that comes up the most often is like agricultural references. Agricultural parables. So why does he do that? Why is it specifically when he's talking about how the kingdom operates and grows and advances, he goes to agriculture? Now, the most obvious answer, and I think this answer is, is right, um, is, is that he's living actually in an agrarian society. Right, like This is what these people know. This is what they do. They know how this works and they know how dependent they are on agriculture and, and, and harvesting and rain and all these things. And, and they know that how that affects them and, and all those things. And so it, it makes sense, of course, that he's going to use what they know a lot to speak to them. And, and I do think that that's a big portion of it. But, but there's maybe some other stuff to it too. Because you could ask it this way. Why don't we ever really see him using like a carpentry reference to talk about the kingdom? Because he he is a carpenter, right? Like, this is what Jesus did, this is what he knows. This is what, for so he starts his ministry at around 30 years old, so for much of his life, he's been doing that. Carrying on the family business, wouldn't that be an obvious point of reference for him? Wouldn't that be an easy way for him to make connections and show things? So why does he pretty much never talk about carpentry? At least when he talks, he talks about you know the wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built so he did. He knows <laughs> that one, right? Okay. Um, and but he doesn't. But 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 that's not really so much explaining. That's explaining how you do with his teaching. That's not explaining how the kingdom works. But but other than that, there's like that I can think of no other carpentry references. So why? Why agriculture? We'll, we'll explain that in a little bit later. First, I want to tell you um, a tale of two brothers. And, and these are two brothers that, that my family kind of connected to their family a little bit. Two brothers named Gene and Roy, both of whom felt called by God to go into vocational ministry. And, and I specifically say vocational ministry because I, I really do believe that... Um, all of us actually have a calling towards ministry. Um, but these these two brothers felt that God was putting it on their heart to, to do like full-time, vocational, this is what they're paid to do ministry. And so um, both of them went into ministry early on in their lives. Gene was the older of the brothers. And, and Gene's ministry basically, for, for the most part, consisted of doing ministry in small churches in small towns. Um, with, with maybe an exception here, or there, he, he, he had one ministry in Denver, but I don't think the church was real big, you know, small to mid-sized there. And, and, and he had one that ended up in Arizona. I don't know where exactly he is in Arizona, but, but a lot of his ministry took place in a small church in a small town called Carterville, Missouri. And, and then for much of these last several years of his life, for a lot of the end of his life, it's been in an even smaller church in an even smaller town called Unionville, Missouri. And, and Gene has spent most of his life um, preaching, teaching in these little churches. Now, it's not all been just that. He also actually would get asked to do um, revivals and, and go preach at revivals sometimes at other churches. But usually when he did that, it would be you know a revival and there'd be 20 people in the room that he was preaching to. Um, and, and this was Gene's life and this is Gene's ministry is to these um, little bitty churches in these little bitty places on the outskirts of middle America, primarily. Um, Roy's ministry path looked a little different than that. Um, Roy became, uh, became actually kind of one of the, he became a campus minister and, and really became, in, in some sense, some people kind of consider him one of like the forefathers of campus ministry for our movement, at least, the Independent Christian Church. And so, kind of what I'm doing, campus ministry in the Independent Christian Church, like Roy was one of the first to do that. He, he started campus ministry at Missouri, at the University of Missouri there. And he wasn't just one of the first campus ministries in our movement. He was also actually running a thriving campus ministry there at Mizzou. Roy had hundreds of students in his campus ministry each year and they had houses where students were living in and they were doing amazing things. And and Roy was there for quite some time, which means he didn't just have hundreds of students that were influenced by him. He had hundreds of students going through every few years, meaning Roy actually had an influence on thousands of students over the course of his ministry. Thousands of students that then went out from Columbia, Missouri to the corners of the country, bringing with them the influence that Roy had brought to them as he taught and preached to them and discipled them, some to distant places in the world. Some of them went into ministry and into campus ministries and started implementing the things that Roy taught to them. But but Roy wasn't just a campus minister. He was a gifted communicator. And so he would often be asked to write for like Christian magazines that were sent out to different churches and different ministers who were reading his stuff. And he'd be asked to go speak at places and not just at like small revivals. Roy would sometimes get asked to go speak to like underground churches overseas in communist countries. And and to preach the word there and and, and did amazing things wherever he got to go. I actually um, had had the, the opportunity to go to Roy's funeral about 6 7 years ago and and his funeral it was they knew when when he died that that there were too many people who were going to want to come to that to be able to have it in a church. And so they actually had to have it at his college, the college that Scott and I went to, actually, is Ozark Christian College, and they had it in the gym there so that all the people that he had had an influence on could come and be there and and celebrate his life and what he had done. So here's my question, second question for the night. Um, Which of those brothers was more successful in ministry? If you've been here very long, you you probably know what the answer is to that. Because um, when it comes to kingdom work, when it comes to kingdom work, work that we do for the kingdom, and again, this, this isn't just a vocational ministry thing. This isn't just, I'm talking about any work you do for the kingdom, no matter what occupation or job you find in yourself. Success is not gauged by numbers, and success is not gauged by, um, by the size of the building that you're in or, or the size of the organization that you're running or the amount of people even who listen to you, the amount of people that you convert or baptize. That's not even actually what success is considered because if that would be true, then according to what Scott just told us about the prophets, all the Old Testament prophets were failures. They didn't have any response, most of them. And so, success when it comes to kingdom work is not gauged by number or size or anything like that. Success when it comes to kingdom work is gauged by faithfulness. Success equals faithfulness. Success equals obedience. And so that means that um, from where I'm standing, from what I can see, neither of them was more successful. They were both equally successful because they were both equally faithful to the task that God had called them to be, both equally faithful. But, which of them was more effective? Which of them had a bigger impact? Because that's not the same. More than likely, we don't say that that was exactly the same for both. I remember when I first went to, uh, to Ozark, and, and in your freshman year, for most people in freshman year, they have you study the book of Acts. You actually spent a whole year in it. Because the idea is if you're going to be doing ministry, then they want you to be um, exploring what the church looked like when it was first born and when it first started growing because they want us to do ministry somewhat like that. Um, to try and look like what the church looked like at the beginning, so we spend our time in the book of Acts, and I remember learning about paul and and what appears to be his missionary strategy, his strategy for going and spreading the gospel and playing churches and that is our professor would tell us if if you notice and this is this is true if you look at a map at the back of your Bible at, at Paul's missionary journeys and where he went he primarily went by and large to large urban city centers he went to Ephesus he went to Corinth he went to Philippi Um, he he went to these big places um, and, and his main goal throughout a lot of his ministry for a long time you can see it in his writings and you can hear it in the book of Acts his main goal is Rome where he's trying to get over and over and over again. And he's trying to get there. And I remember being taught and told about how the way that Paul would go to these places because the idea is that if you could get the gospel into the middle of a major urban area where there is political kind of the political epicenter of the area and the economic epicenter of the area and the cultural epicenter of the area and you get the gospel rooted in deep there, then it can spread out to all the surrounding areas around it. And so Paul would go to these places and he'd plant churches there. And then he'd go to another big place and plant churches there. And, and then I remember a couple years later in my church planting class um, talking about practically what church planting looks like today and, and how we ought to do those things. And, and, and our professor would talk to us about some of that same stuff, the, tra- the strategy of the Apostle Paul when he was planting churches and how he went about it. And he put a strong emphasis on in North America going to the Northeast. Because in the Northeast is like a third of the population is up in that Northeast corner in there. And not just that, you have like the political center of the country there in D.C. And you also have like the economic center and and cultural center in New York. And you have like an educational center in Boston there. And you have other big places like Philadelphia. And you've got all these big cities and all these big things happening there. And he would... Plead Please, guys, please, get. we need some people to head up to the northeast. We need to get the gospel to the northeast. And I remember really being taken back by this and really kind of um, surprised me how much this all made sense. And, and I hadn't seen that before, that if we could just get the gospel to the places where influence was and then let that get out to everywhere else, then that's how we could get the gospel throughout the world. That's how we could see the kingdom advance. And I remember being... Um, Really impressed with this and, and really um, excited about the possibilities of this until one day it hit me that, like, if, if this is the best means of advancing the kingdom, like, somebody forgot to tell God. Like, that, or he was late to that day of church planning class or something <laughs> like that, right? Um, because when, when God comes to initiate his kingdom here on earth and when he comes to start it, not just to advance it, but to start it, because it's his, and he sends his son to do that. He doesn't send him to the most likely, most obvious choice, and that is Rome, the center of the Roman Empire that was ruling the entire known world to those people at that time. Like that, that just makes sense that you. But he doesn't put him there. He doesn't put him in Ephesus. He doesn't put him in Corinth. Those are at least maybe made sense, maybe Athens. Um, would have been a great educational or Alexandria center of the world, and Jesus doesn't go there. He goes to this occupied territory, this this place called Palestine, where the people haven't even owned their own land, their own space for much of their existence. And, and, and not just anywhere in Palestine. He... He didn't send him like Jerusalem, which could have been at least a good, influential place for the religion of Judaism there to end up where the center of the religion is and where the capital of the place is. No, he sends him to Galilee. Remember, the, the Arkansas of Palestine. That's, that's where God puts his son, is right there in, in Nazareth, in Capernaum, next to some little lake there. Hanging out and 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 he goes and he recruits not not governors, not synagogue rulers, not priests. He goes and gets fishermen and tax collectors. Like if if doing kingdom work is best done by going to the most powerful and influential places and getting the gospel into those places, somebody forgot to tell God. Because that's not. That's just not the way he operated. So he goes into these backwoods Galilean places and he starts this movement and things are really exciting at first because he's saying some amazing things and he's doing some even more amazing things, at least according to people. He's healing people and, and doing things that nobody has seen before and he's casting out demons, and so the crowds start to follow him. So much so that he can't be in the towns anymore. He's got to go to the outside because they're just coming after him in, this, in these huge throngs of people going after him. And, and it seems like this movement is, is really starting to build and really starting to take off, and his disciples must have been excited about this. This is the guy who said the kingdom of God is coming, and, and now movement, momentum, is starting to go. But, but then they hit some kind of weird spots. We talked about those last week like where the religious leaders of the day like are against him and that must have seemed weird because you know if you're a good jew if god is coming to restore his kingdom that surely those people who spent the most time studying the law and studying god would be on that kingdom side so if they're not on jesus's side what does that say about him and his movement and in fact his own people his own family Seem to think he's crazy. They come to get him and say he's out of his mind. We got to go take care of this. And so if his own family doesn't even believe. And maybe, like maybe this isn't what it was supposed to be. And and the truth is, even though it was growing, starting to do some amazing things, like they would have had to start questioning at what point is Jesus going to start moving this thing forward if this is really going to be the kingdom that God said it was going to be. Like if we're really going to bring Israel, God's people, back to power again and take this land back over and begin to expand our influence, something needs to start happening. You know this thought had to cross their mind. How amazing could this movement be if our general can heal anybody who gets wounded in battle? Like how unstoppable could we be and this is going to be great and nothing ever, like no army starts getting formed. No plays for political power seem to be taking place and, and, and His disciples have got to be wondering at this point when the leaders are against it, the family's against it and it seems like like it's growing but is it really doing anything? Is this like the kingdom that we were supposed to be looking for? And it's at that point that Jesus comes to This place, and he shares these different parables with his disciples about what the kingdom of God is like. And he goes to these agricultural ideas and parables, and he says this that the the kingdom is like a farmer who sows seed, and that seed lands on different types of soil, and some of that soil will not respond to it, and nothing's going to happen. But Jesus says that doesn't mean that the seed itself is ineffective. Because there's going to be some places where the seed hits and it produces ten, hundred, a 1, thousand fold when that happens. And he says the, the kingdom is, is kind of like a guy who goes out and he scatters seed on the ground and then in ways that he cannot control and, and in some ways really can't even comprehend, it just starts growing. He says whether he's sleeping or awake, it starts to do its work in and of itself. But, in its own time. It doesn't just pop up all of a sudden. It's, no, no, first the blade, then the, the, the head for the grain, and then the grain starts to pop out of that. And he says it's, it's kind of like, the kingdom is like this really, really tiny seed that looks like nothing. And you look at it and you go, is that it? And then when you plant it, though, eventually in its own time, it takes off and becomes something big, and you would have never even guessed that this would one day become this. That, he says, is what the kingdom is like. Here's why Jesus, I think, didn't use a lot of carpentry parables when he told about the kingdom. Because carpentry, carpentry is something that, that can actually take place fairly quickly. Like it takes a day or two, if you want, to, to build a chair or or to build a table if you're good. Not not if I do it. It takes a lot longer than that, right? But but if you but if you've got a good carpenter who knows what they're doing, they can put together a piece of furniture fairly quickly. Here's another thing about carpentry. I control it. Like like I'm the one who glues pieces together or nails pieces together or drills pieces together, like I'm the one who cuts the wood, I'm the one who lines it up, I'm the one who makes this thing happen and I do it in my own speed and I do it in a way that I want to. Here's another truth about carpentry, is at any given point along the process, I can perceive and judge how this thing is going. Like, I can look down and see if this leg is warped. Or I can look and see if I've got a bad piece of wood here. I can look and see if it's not holding together very well. I can perceive and judge it all the way through the process. None of those three things is true about the kingdom. None of those things is true about the kingdom. None of the kingdom is something that that happens at its own pace and in its own time and slower than we might expect or look at the, um, expect it to take place. The kingdom is something that I have a role to play in like a farmer sowing seed but I have no control over. I don't control the rain. I don't control the soil. I don't control the seed itself. Like it does that stuff and I just stand back and watch. The kingdom is also something that I can't actually judge or perceive at any given point during it, how effective it is and how well it's working. Like I could sow seed and it may be underground and nothing pops up for two or three weeks and I could think that was a waste, but that doesn't mean that something's not happening just beneath the surface. That there might be amazing things taking place and eventually something big might happen shortly after that. I, I, I I can't evaluate it right off the bat. It's not going to be something I can evaluate until the end, until the harvest comes fully. So, to the, to the second question, which of the brothers, Gene or Roy, had a bigger impact for the kingdom? The answer, we don't know. We don't know. Like, I got I got no idea. Sure, I, it, it looks like Roy... Preach to more people. It looks like Roy had an impact in more people's life. We know that Roy probably shared the gospel with and, and maybe baptized more people and all those things. I don't know what kind of soil he was preaching to. Like I don't know what's gonna ta- I don't know what those people are gonna do, how much they're gonna sow seed. I don't know how much the, the soil was that Gene was preaching to, and, and whether that soil becomes good sowers who will sow the seed. I don't know. And so the truth of the matter is there's there's no I can't say there's no way to evaluate like we can we have hints we can have clues like if if one brother goes and he preaches the gospel in 30 different countries and one brother plays video games and eats cheetos for his whole life like I can I can take a pretty good guess at which one is having a greater kingdom impact, right? But when both are being faithful to the task that God has called them in, like it might take years for me to be able to fully see where the impact is, and I may not know until eternity. And this is the message of the parables in the kingdom. Like we sow, and then we wait, and then we trust, and then one day we'll get to see. That's the message of the kingdom. So, How do we respond to the message of these parables? Three things. Number one is this. Be faithful where you're at. Are you tired of hearing that yet? Faithful where you're at. We're only like a month in. We've said it like five times. Um, And we're going to say it a whole lot more. But let me kind of flesh that out a little bit of what I mean specifically in this thing. You do not have to wait until you're in a position of greater influence or authority until, you know, you're a grown-up with a job or, or even until you're at, like, a master's student level or, or in some place where you have influence because the truth is, once you get out of school, you're not really going to be in any place of influence anyway, right? You're going to be like that, that runt who goes and gets coffee or whatever for everybody at your, at your business. Like, but, but the truth is, I know, shoot high, aim high, guys. Um, but, but, this is, but this is, listen, this is the good news. You don't have to, like you don't have to be in any position of influence like what, like that's not how the kingdom has ever really seemed to work. Is that the most influential do the greatest amount of things for the kingdom no, no no, you sow seeds now like you start where you're at and you be, you be faithful where you're at you don't have to try and find what major could I choose that would be like the most spiritual or do the best kingdom work that's not necessarily how we operate. No, no, you take the passions and the gifting that God's given you and you go wherever those passions and giftings fit and you be faithful where that is. You be faithful with the roommates that you have. You be faithful around the classes, uh, the classmates that you have. Um, last week we had, I-, I thought, a pretty cool time when, when Rachel at the end had us pray for those of us who were, who were some of the only People in their families who are christian and and uh, it, it was cool for us. I got to pray back in this corner with a friend a group of us did back in in this back corner if you were if you were some of us with them and, and we prayed for a friend 's dad who hadn 't been to church or hadn 't really wanted anything to do with Jesus in fifteen years and and this week um, they're going to church for the first time in 15 years. And, and so like, it, was, it was a cool thing. And I was excited about that. And it's cool to see, listen, the way, the way that the kingdom is working in somebody's heart and life in a way that maybe we never even could have seen coming. But here's, here's one thing that was a little odd. Is when Rachel said at first, I'd like you to stand up if you're the only person in your family who's a Christian. We had how many people stand up? Zero. Now, I, I recognize there were some people who weren't here, and maybe there's some who fit in that. And, and I recognize that there are some people who, who maybe were, have been in a Christian family, but they kind of walked away and they've come back a little bit through this ministry or are growing in new ways. But, like, largely what that probably means if there's nobody in here who's the only Christian in their family, it means that um, we're not reaching any lost people. Like that there's nobody who came here as a non-Christian and we reached out to them, sowed seed, and, and and the Lord used that to bring them into the kingdom. If we've got no new Christians in here and, and that's, I'm not saying that to shame you guys, that's largely on like me. That's, that's Scott and I have talked, sometimes we feel like that's sort of the culture we've set a little bit here. Um, and, and, and that's probably not good because even though we can't control the kingdom, we have a part to play. And and you you don't know what kind of soil God might be preparing all around you right now without you even seeing or knowing it. And maybe he's got people who are like, do it, like could it be, and the answer is yes before I ask the question, could it be that God has placed you where you are for a specific reason and purpose. Could it be that he has you sitting next to the person you're sitting next to in Trigg for like a purpose? Could it, like, could it be that you're with the roommate you're with for like a reason um, and that he's doing things in their heart? Again, the, the friend that we prayed for last week, his dad, we just found out there's actually stuff that's been going on in him like long before we prayed. Actually, I say long before recently at least before we prayed. God was doing work in him and then we got to pray for it and God responded to that and then, and then our friend got to ask their dad. They started this process of sowing seed and, and there was a response that took place to it. Like, How do you know that that's not happening in your life already, in the lives of people all around you? Um, be faithful where you're at in the different avenues that he has you and, and look to sow seed. Number two, even though we are called to be faithful where we're at and we have a role to play, the second thing is this, that we, you don't have to feel like the kingdom's growth depends on you. And that's really good news because you do have a role and you do have a calling to go and to try and display and proclaim the kingdom to people around you. But it's not on you. Like the weight of that burden doesn't have to be on you. Their eternal fate doesn't rest on your shoulders. Um, like, it's not, it's not up to you. It's not like, well, I'm afraid to say things because if I don't say the right thing, or you say something, you walk away going, stupid, if only I would have said this instead of this. Like, I don't know if it fully works that way, guys. Like, it, like the, the gospel, as we proclaim truth, like, has power in and of itself to begin to transform and open up lives and hearts. And so, you do the sowing, and then you trust. And you might need to do some watering, but, but you trust. And, and you let the kingdom and its power and the gospel do the work in another person's life. Number three is this. So first is be faithful where you're at. Second, don't feel like the kingdom's growth depends on you. And number three, don't be overly discouraged by what looks like a lack of results. So when you sow seed when you have conversations, when you reach out to those around you that God has placed in your life and, and things don't happen right off the bat, you don't baptize thirteen people this week. Like that you don't have to go, this is a failure, what am I what am I doing? You like you don't know. Just like a farmer doesn't really fully know what's happening to that seed underneath the soil. You don't fully know what's happening in that person's heart. Rachel actually shared the story last week sharing truth in the gospel with her brother and and walking away going that was a waste of time and then only recently five six years later her brother's saying I've been thinking about that day ever since. She didn't know that. All she can do is sow seed and trust. And and the kingdom, we don't control the kingdom. I don't bring the kingdom. I'm the kingdom servant. And I go out and I simply point to it. And I point to the king himself. And I point that to people around me. And, and by the way, like this is, this is whatever conviction on Drew time too. Just so, just so we're aware. Like I, like I need to be doing this with one neighbor particularly that I'm thinking about right now. And uh, and but but the good news is it's not on me. His soul isn't all on me. I get to go, subside, trust, pray, wait, and watch what God may do in his life. And that's what we get to do as followers of Jesus. Let me uh, let me pray real quick that that will happen for us. God, your kingdom is um, your kingdom is big, and and it's not even as I say that um, it occurs to me that's not even fully done growing yet. Like I don't even it, there's going to be a day when we get to look back and we get to see how big this harvest really was and things that we thought were so small, and things that we thought were insignificant. Um, we're going to look back and see where your hand was working in it all, and where you were doing some amazing things. And, and, and what started in this little backwoods corner of Palestine is spreading out across the earth. And, and it'll be so cool to see the day when every tongue and tribe and nation is standing before your throne worshiping you. And um, yeah, here's what I know is that I want to be a part of that. And what I, what I know is I want our ministry to be a part of that, um, but I know that um, also I really want people to like me, and I really don't want to make things awkward, and, and, uh, and sometimes I feel like it's all on me to say the right thing or do the right thing, and so I say nothing at all, um, but... but um, your word says that none of that is true and that your kingdom has power in and of itself. And it's not just about my persuasive words. It's about you. And so, Lord, I pray this, that you would help us to see that truth and trust that truth. And I pray for that, um, each of us in here, that we would walk away not feeling overwhelmed, but feeling a necessary um, burden to to, to, to sow seed, that we would have even a name, a face in our mind or heart, Lord, that you would burn in there for us to, to want to share the good news about who Jesus is with them and then, and then pray and ask you to do the work and Lord when it happens may we not go man what a cool coincidence and when it happens may we not go man I'm so glad I'm good at sharing the gospel or, or whatever may when it happens may we just go glory to you because it's all you and it's your power and it's your glory and it's your work and, and uh, may you get all the glory from it and so Lord, I ask you that in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, thanks, guys. We have, uh, well, as always, we got some massive amount of chips and queso, I think, over here. And so hang out, dig in, chat with us a little bit. If you got any questions or whatever, Scott, Rachel, and I would love to
0: chat. So we're here.